Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here in this place with us this morning. And we trust that you are a promise-keeping God and that you are here in our midst. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things I remember about my father from when I was a kid, and I'm not sure what the protocol is about quoting and telling stories about my father now that he sits in the front row, Um, but I'm just going to go for it anyway. Uh, One of the things that I remember, other than the legendary encyclopedic knowledge of movies, was a very specific excuse that he would offer. Whenever anyone would ask him a technical question uh, to explain something scientific or to, say, help with a math problem, he'd say, hey, I'm a liberal arts major. (laughs) And then I grew up to be a liberal arts major. And I appropriated the phrase for my very own. Don't ask me those hard, concrete questions. I live the life of the mind. But you know, the life of the mind can be frustrating. I want to be able to answer technical questions, explain scientific things, and help with math problems. And at a couple points in my life, especially as a younger man, the ethereal nature of the life of the mind frustrated me to the point where I found myself desperately wanting a simple and concrete task to complete. For instance, I have thought on several occasions that a job on an assembly line would be really satisfying. Perhaps you've felt the same way. You clock in at a certain time, the widgets start coming down the conveyor belt, and at the end of your shift, you have a pile of completed products. Before you came, they didn't exist, but now they do. And you have a super clear and objective way to see your impact on the world. You can point at that pile and say, I did that. That desire is what led me to take a job landscaping at a private school for a summer. I think it was after my sophomore year of college. It had that same appeal. When I arrived in the morning... The football field wouldn't be mowed, right? And then when I left in the afternoon, it would be. I could point to it at the end of the day and say, I did that. I lasted three hours. (laughs) My boss had me weeding a flower bed at the side of the school, and I was probably down on my hands and knees in the dirt for about 15 seconds before I realized, I hate this. I gutted it out until lunch and then quit. Now, as a brief aside here, those three hours gave me the utmost respect for landscapers, factory workers, manual laborers, heavy machinery operators, all of them. Amazing, talented, and dedicated. That's work, real work, and super valuable work at that. But give me the life of the mind. But I can still see the appeal. Right? I still feel it now and then. I think we all can. And it's one of the reasons that Paul's list 
of rules for life in Romans chapter 12 is so appealing. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. Do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And he goes on and on. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. Everyone who has ever desired a nice, clear to-do list is excited now, right? A concrete task? What does God want? No mystery here. Boom, right there in black and white. Uh, But there's a trick to our excitement about to-do lists, isn't there? We get excited about to-do lists for the same reason that a job on an assembly line excites us. The same reason the life of the mind frustrates us. To-do lists allow us, when all is said and done, to point back to our accomplishments and say, I did that. But that assumes that the to-do list is full of stuff that we can actually do. When we are presented with the to-do list, like the one Paul has for us here in Romans chapter 12, the human person reacts in two ways, one right after the other. First, like I've said, we breathe a sigh of relief. Thank goodness, something concrete to do. But we also then immediately then do something else, something quite sneaky. We quietly lower the bar of expectation so that the commandments become something that we can accomplish. This is our human nature at work because God's real law, his actual chiseled on stone tablets and written on our hearts law is a standard too high. And too holy for anyone. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Well, gosh, we didn't even get out of the first sentence before we run into the wall of human ability. Or should I say human inability? Just a few words into this section. And what an expectation. It's what sounds like. We're going to be taking care of the grounds at a small private school, which sounds like something simple and easy and eminently doable that would be no particular problem, but then turns into back-breaking and, in my case, soul-destroying labor. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good seems so simple and so obviously right. Who could have a problem with this? But then we make the attempt. Then we get to work. And remember, this is the same Paul 
who wrote just a few chapters ago in this same letter about how he can never do the good things he wants to do and how he keeps on doing the evil things that he hates. Just like you. Just like me. So, hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Is a wonderful law. It's true. And right. And holy. But it is in practice an impossible law to keep. So our strategy, you and I, as human beings, to get out from under this impossible-to-keep law is to engage in evasive maneuvers. So we lower the bar. Hate what is evil becomes don't do bad things anywhere that anyone else can see them. Hold fast to what is good becomes agree with whatever the popular people around me are saying. And you can see how this strategy might get played out through the rest of the section. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Man, do not claim to be wiser than you are. That cuts me to the heart. So I get to work. Each commandment here can be lowered, changed, or softened. Okay. Uh, Try not to complain about suffering too much, at least not out loud. And prayer, well, tell people that I pray two to three times more than I actually pray. Give some money to the church and other charitable causes, but not in such a way that it keeps me from doing the things I want to do. Uh, strangers, okay, perhaps be pleasant to a stranger in a store or let a stranger merge in front of me on the highway, but actual hospitality? I can barely find it within me to be hospitable to my friends, much less strangers. And so it goes. We modify the commandments, lowering them to a point at which we can tell ourselves and those around us that we have followed them. But there is a huge cost to this strategy. First, it shrouds the very holiness of God. Treating something that is not godly, our lowered commandment, as though it was. In other words, it takes the Lord's name in vain. This is not an overstatement. Lowering his commandments takes God's name in vain. And second, this strategy allows us to consider ourselves law keepers when we are not, thereby tricking us into forgetting our need for a Savior. These costs are way too high. We cannot let this happen. As a great song lyric goes, what's the use in trading a law you can never keep for one you can that cannot get you anything? What's the use in trading never avenge yourselves for, well, maybe get a little revenge, but only in secret? 
when only one of those laws is actually from God. So, as we attempt to understand what Paul is doing here in this section of Romans 12, there are a couple of things we need to remember. First of all, one, a fact to which we have already drawn our attention. This is the same Paul who wrote the rest of Romans. Not only the great cry for help in Romans 7, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, who will rescue me from this body of death, but the full first half of the book, which sets off a gospel bomb in the life of the human person. While we were still weak, he writes, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In light of this good news, nothing can ever be the same again. And nothing that Paul writes here in chapter 12 can be taken to undermine this gospel, the free grace of Christ for sinners. Indeed, as Paul writes in chapter 5, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We received grace by faith, he says, and we stand in grace by faith. We were saved by grace through faith. We will finish by grace through faith. In fact, and this is the second thing we need to understand, there is a key interpretive distinction to make here. Theologians have categorized these kinds of commands of Paul given in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ already proclaimed in the letter. They have categorized them as descriptive rather than prescriptive. And in other words, they describe the new life into which a Christian is welcomed. They describe the new life that a Christian is actually given as a gift by the Holy Spirit. They describe a resurrection life. This is in distinction to something that is prescriptive, like a medication, a treatment prescribed by a doctor that can heal what ails you. Now, people are sin sick, to be sure. But Paul telling you to extend hospitality to strangers, even if you do it, isn't going to make you better. You are made better by Christ and by Christ alone. You are reconciled to a holy God by the blood of Jesus and nothing else. These commands are not medication to make you well. They are a description of what life, new life in Jesus Christ will look like. And we can see the pastoral implications, how this works out in real life in Paul's fiery letter to the Galatians. He had preached the same message in Galatia that he writes about here to the Romans, the good news that there is no law you can follow to be made right with God. That reconciliation is only possible through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But then Paul left 
to go preach the gospel somewhere else. And a group that were called the Judaizers moved into town. It's like a Western. Right? Paul leaves, and here come the Judaizers. And they taught people that, well, Paul was almost right. But they said, you do have to keep some of the law. Specifically in their context, the law in question was circumcision. You had to become Jewish, a lawkeeper, to then become Christian and be saved. And some in Galatia were being convinced that there was some law that they needed to run back to. And so Paul, hearing about this, writes a letter back to these Christians, back to this church he founded, and he puts them, as the kids say, on blast. Are you crazy? Paul says. I can't believe it, what I'm hearing. Having begun by the Spirit... He sarcastically asks, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, how can you, who have heard the gospel, now think that to be perfected, you have to run back to the law? Don't you dare. Paul's message is clear. We must not, as Christians who know the saving work, the finished work of Jesus Christ, run back to law-keeping. So if Paul is so adamantly against the reapplication of the law to the Christian life in Galatians, what's he doing here in Romans? How are we to understand this text? Rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, persevere in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, extend hospitality to strangers, and so on. Law after law after law. First, Paul is reminding us that we must never, not for one moment, seek to lower the standard of the law, even one inch. It is a glorious commandment meant to show us how we are meant to live. Each entreaty here, from refusing to exact revenge to not pretending to be wise and everything in between, each law must be submitted to in its full flower. Turn the other cheek. Always. When someone asks you for your cloak, give them your tunic as well every time. The standard of the law must remain as holy as God himself. Second, Paul writes this text, and we must read it and texts like it in light of the gospel. These commands are given to a people who are already justified and made right with God. These are Christians. This is not a prescription given by a doctor to make a bad person good. That healing work is already complete, sealed by Christ's sacrifice for you. As Christ announced on the cross, it is finished. And therefore... And finally, in light of that good news, Paul is giving a description of a life lived on the other side of that finish line. It's a life that the Spirit gives to the follower of Christ as a gift. And it can be given as a gift by Jesus Christ because it is the actual life that Jesus lived. He lived this life of faithfulness, following the law at its highest pitch, 
And then he gave it all to you. So rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Seek to live this way. Pray to God for guidance and ability. Strive toward this kind of holiness. But when you come face to face with your sin, which you are sure to do if you refuse to lower the bar of God's holy law, when you come face to face with your sin, recognize that it is you that is the problem, not the law of God. Do you lust? Confess. Repent. Mortify the flesh. Do not take the Lord's name in vain by lowering the standard of his law. Do you fail to love your enemy? Confess. Repent. Mortify the flesh. Do not take the Lord's name in vain by lowering the standard of the law. Instead, let the law of God drive you back to your knees once again, calling out to the one name by which you and I might be and indeed have been saved. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. (laughs) That morning of landscaping at the private school opened my eyes. I knew that a standard had been set that I was failing to meet. The difficulty of that work showed me my weakness. I'd fallen in love with the idea of a to-do list because I wanted at the end of the day to point back to my accomplishment and say, I did that. But I failed. I couldn't do that. And in the same way, if we read Paul's to-do list here as an opportunity for us to put in a good day of hard work, look back, point, and say, I did that, we will die. This is kind of what Peter is after when he rebukes Jesus for saying that he's going to have to die. Peter wants to be able to say, we did that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on human things, to-do lists, the desire to say, I did that. Set your mind on things above. Because we as human beings, we will not only fail, we will fail to reach out to Jesus. The one who died for us and was raised for our justification. If the appeal of a normal to-do list is the ability to point back and say, I did that. The goal of Paul's to-do list is to point to Jesus Christ. And for us to rejoice, shouting, he did that. He did do that. And he did it for you. So hear God's good commands and submit to them. Strive to keep them. And when you fail, fall to your knees. Again and again. Confess. Repent. Throw yourself at the merciful feet of the one who kept God's law perfectly. Though he was innocent, Jesus paid the price that you owed 
died the death that you deserved and did it all in your place for you. And then raised on the third day, he gave his innocence to you as a gift. You, the guilty one, go free in Jesus' name. Amen.